You're listening to the Science Circle Podcast. It's a nonprofit program serving a global alliance of scientists, educators, students, and you. Welcome. I had the recent pleasure of speaking with biologist and patent attorney Matthew Burr on the Science Circle podcast. He had so many useful suggestions for inventors and innovators, whether you're a young student with a new idea on how to do something better, or you're an established science researcher with a big technological breakthrough. It's such an important topic if you are an inventor or creator, how to protect your ideas. So here's part two of my conversation with Matthew Burr. I hope it does you some good. Our guest is Matthew Burr. He has a science degree in biology from the University of California at San Diego and graduate studies at the Baylor College of Medicine. He's worked as a technician in biology labs at the Salk Institute, Harvard, and MIT. He then went to law school and is now a patent attorney in Texas for more than 20 years, serving entrepreneurs and startups with patent law. What is your best advice for a listener out there, possibly a a budding student full of ideas or maybe a scientist with an idea? What's your best advice to them as an attorney? Is it maybe to call your friends at InventHelp like the George Foreman Grill or do you take it to your supervisor or do you contact a patent attorney? What should you do with your great idea? Well, it sort of depends. If you come up with an invention, maybe as part of your job, uh, if you work, maybe work for a university or work for a tech company or something, um, you know, you may have an obligation to report that invention to your employer. That would be like a work uh, for hire, right? Something you might right, have like a work for hire, exactly right. something like that, or just as part of your employment agreement. But if you know, if you just come up with an idea as you're driving home, or maybe on the weekends you're uh, tinkering with something or come up with an idea. There's a couple of steps. Um, One of the things you want to do is find out whether anyone else has already thought of your invention. (laughs) So, um, so there are, you know, online resources. Uh, Google has a patent search engine, for for instance, Um, and you can, and also the USPTO has a search function. So you can try uh, sort of doing keyword searches on the internet to see if you can find any. uh, references about your invention. Um, although if you really get serious about it, I do think you should uh, engage um, a professional search service to find what we call prior art on your invention um, because keyword searches won't always bring up uh, all of the relevant references that uh, might affect the patentability of your invention. I would also recommend uh, you can do what's called a provisional patent application. This is a process that was really invented or com- devised for uh, academic inventors who have an obligation to publish their work. And uh, there was always a crisis between, oh my gosh, my poster session is tomorrow and I forgot to file a patent application. You can, you know, file an informal application like the your, the manuscript of your paper that's going to come out in a journal tomorrow or something. Um, and that manuscript will serve as a what's called a provisional patent application, quote unquote. Um, it doesn't get examined. It will never turn into a patent or anything. It's really what we call a priority document. It, is, it documents that you made the invention and you get a filing date and a serial number with the patent office. Um, and then you have a year to convert that informal 
document into a formal patent application. And even though this uh, provisional uh, process was devised for academics, it's turned out to be very popular with entrepreneurs because it allows you to protect your intellectual property um, inexpensively and without having to fully commit to the patent process, which can be expensive and also go on for, you know, can go on for a few years. Of course, making um, a mistake can be also expensive as well. Yeah, tr- well, that's true too. So, Matt, we try in our courts to find equity. It's one of the majesties of the law, I think. I did make it through first-year law school, and I just love the philosophical roots of it all and our striving for justice. Of course, then it got really hard, and I went elsewhere. But copyright and patent law seek to find a balance between the flow of ideas and discoveries while still protecting the rights and revenues of the creator. So where do we find this balance of these interests in the law? It's interesting you mentioned patent and copyright because both of those two, those two forms of intellectual property are specifically called out in the Constitution. Um, so they uh, were anticipated even by our founding fathers as being important to protect the rights of authors and inventors. Now, uh, patents, part of the equity with patents is that there's a social bargain. Uh, you have to teach your invention to the public. Patents are public documents that you can pull up online anytime, um, and they have to teach the invention in a way that uh, others can uh, make and use the invention or learn from it to improve it, but patents expired. So the part of the patent rights is you can exclude others from making, using, or selling your invention, but and that sort of as a monopoly, but that monopoly expires eventually, typically um, about 15 years after the patent is granted. Technically, it's a 20-year term, but it takes a few years. That term is measured from the filing date, so and it can take a few years to get the patent. So the effective life of the patent is, I don't know, 15 to 17 years, and those patent rights do expire. There are some tricks of the trade, some ways to kind of game the system to extend patent rights, but part of the social bargain is that the patents do expire. The the uh, monopoly is not indefinite. Um, copyright terms are much longer for the life of the author, plus some amount of years, depending on whether the author is uh, an individual or a corporation can be an author also under some circumstances. Um, and copyright is intended to protect the uh, works of authorship. So that includes, of course, you know, writing books or novels, but also music, of course, sculpture, Uh, Even choreography, for example, the key with copyright is that your idea has to be fixed in a tangible medium. So, you know, you actually have to write the book or or write the score or record it or something like that and have it fixed in a medium uh, that can be registered with the copyright office. Also, you should register your copyrightable works. Don't rely on your natural rights as the author of a copyright because those really are not very strong and you know, really not very enforceable. If you ever get in a situation where you need to enforce your copyrights, you should have a registered copyright, which is simple to do through the Library of Congress Copyright Office. It really is a beautiful balance in the law, isn't it? This striving for the protections of the creator while also ensuring that knowledge gets dispersed and we can all tap into it for our own creativity. We don't really create anything, do we? We synthesize perhaps what came before us and build something new out of that. So we all stand on the backs of giants. I think copyright law, patent law is working very hard to try to acknowledge that while still providing some protections. 
I couldn't agree more. And I do think the system does try to strike a balance between the public good and incentivizing private innovation. There is some controversy, particularly with respect to copyright, because copyright terms are so long. You know, for example, I do think that um, a lot of artists are, you know, um, hankering to be able to make derivative works of Mickey Mouse, for example. Um, but the, <laughs> the copyrights for the Disney products keep getting extended and extended, and they never enter the public domain where other artists can take advantage of them. Um, and the irony is that a lot of uh, Disney works, of course, are based on ancient folk tales from the, from the public domain. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that ironic? You've been working now as a patent attorney for more than 20 years, going on a quarter century, I believe. And uh, have you seen patterns in inventions and patents over this time that gives you some kind of sense of where we may be heading uh, as a people, as a species? Of course, the biggest pattern in patent law has been the explosion of electronic and digital technologies, of course. Um, and in fact, the explosion of software in the last 20 years has resulted in modifications of the patent law. Um, it's changed the way the patent system, for example, views obviousness um, when you submit a patent. One of the bases that a patent can be rejected is that it's um, obvious. That actually has a technical meeting I won't go into, but um, and the explosion of software patents and uh, digital uh, technologies has uh, forced the law to modify how uh, what it considers obvious. So electronics and digital works is, is a clear a trend. Um, I think we may be on the cusp of seeing perhaps a similar explosion in biology with the advent of gene editing. Um, not quite sure how that's going to play out. But I will say that I do think uh, gene editing technologies hold either the promise or the threat of really transforming the human species. I think the technology, maybe not in a few generations, but maybe in three or four hundred years, who knows, will become so cheap and so widespread and so tantalizing. Um, it'll be so hard to not want to have a designer baby that's going to be smart and athletic and tall um, and so forth, or who knows, or have immunity diseases and so forth. I think that's going to be so tantalizing that eventually we are going to succumb to it. So that is a, a that I um, uh, that I'm afraid to say I think is going to happen. Under patent laws, there have been uh, some famous instances where an inventor was never fairly compensated for a very successful invention. One of those, I believe, was the uh, ratchet socket wrench uh, many years ago. Have you seen any such horror stories where an inventor was really wronged? Yes, that does happen. Um, Part of it uh, is, you know, that uh, companies just take over ownership of the patent. And I do think that, um, you know, in, uh, inventors do need to be careful about sort of um, how they uh, dispose of their invention um, or how they protect their invention that or how they commercialize their invention. Um, as much as possible, you want to be able to retain sort of at least nominal um, ownership of your intellectual property. So I would recommend, for example, rather than selling your patents, you license your patents um, so that you can retain uh, some semblance of ownership uh, in it. Um, now, sometimes that's not always possible. You may have um, be under an employment or uh, work for hire agreement um, where you know you you have the uh, the employer or 
the contractor will own the fruits of your labor. Um, and your compensation basically in those instances is your salary. Maybe some will have um, arrangements for some kind of bonuses or something like that. Um, but I'm sure there have been horror stories where um, inventors just simply got ripped off. Um, and someone absconded with their IP rights. Well, hopefully today you have saved one or two of our listeners from that unfortunate experience. Our guest for this episode of The Science Circle was Matthew Burr, a biologist, a patent attorney, and someone with many useful suggestions to protect your own creative works. Thank you, Matt, and we'll be right back. The Science Circle is a nonprofit program based in the Netherlands with a recording studio here in Southern California. For more information on this podcast and other Science Circle programs, please visit sciencecircle.org. That's sciencecircle.org. This podcast is under Creative Commons license and is freely available for educational use. Until the next time, I'm your host, Stephen Van Hook. Be well. <laughs>